these moments where the status quo is going to be massively disrupted and you need to decide which side of that equation you're on. Like, are you going to preserve the status quo because it serves you or are you going to jump in and be part of that disruption? You know, I had the opportunity to be part of that disruption here. Um, and I think it's been it's been good. Like we've been off to a very good start um, as a company. But uh, I think every entrepreneur needs to make that decision. You know, are you the incumbent who's trying to preserve order, or are you the insurgent trying to go ahead and disrupt the, the current order? And there, there's there's pros and cons of being on either side of that equation. That's how success happens. From Entrepreneur Magazine, my name is Robert Tuckman. I self-funded, built up, and eventually sold two businesses to major players in the sports and entertainment industry. And I am fascinated by other entrepreneurial minds and what drives high-achieving people. So on this podcast, we're going to learn what they've learned and what it takes to really succeed. Richard Stern is the CEO of TuneIn. It's the leading live global streaming and on-demand audio service in the world. An experienced digital consumer product executive with more than 25 years of industry experience, Richard was previously chief product officer at Audible, leading the company's global product and design organizations. What I love is Rich is also the founder of Four Daughters Entertainment. It's a mission-driven film and television production company devoted to inclusion and diversity. I wanted to start with Rich by asking him about going from these big companies to his own ventures and the differences in both. And if growing up impacted him to be able to handle both situations. Rich, thanks so much for joining me on uh, How Success Happens. It's such a pleasure to have you on the show because you're someone who is not, I can't categorize you as a, an entrepreneur, someone who's worked for a big company. You've done so many different things in your career. And uh, I want to go back and find out, talk to you, you know, where it all started and, and where you grew up and were there influences early in your life that kind of led you down this path into entertainment and audio? Yeah. Yeah. Well, first of all, thanks for having me, Robert. And also, I think you're one of those multi-hyphenates too. Like you, you've, you've kind of done it all and worked at different levels. So it, it kind of takes one to know one. I, I grew up in the Midwest. I grew up in Northern Illinois, uh, just outside of Chicago. And I think there are two experiences for me that are really formative. One was growing up at the time that I did in the Midwest, everything I knew about the world came from media. So, you know, television and on Saturdays, getting my parents to drop me off at the movies and staying there all day. That's how I learned about the world. And in some cases, it was really helpful because it got me to think more expansively about places outside of Illinois that I might want to go and be part of. In some cases, it was greatly detrimental when I when I did go to those places and found that there were nothing like the movies or television. But I think it was much more about getting the courage to go and the interest in going than necessarily using them as a guidebook. And so media has always been a very important part of my life, even from those early formative stages. And then, you know, the first experience I had with entrepreneurialism was for my first job. I delivered pizzas. And what I loved about that job was actually I was sort of an, a business owner inside of a larger business. 
because I got paid a nominal sum on an hourly basis, but I worked for tips. And so if I took care of my clients and I got them the product quickly, that was money into my pocket. And I could start thinking about how to do that. Like how, how could I deliver pizzas faster? How could I make sure that they were warmer? How did I recognize and remember my clients as I came through? And all of that trickled down to my very small bottom line at that point. But I love that idea that I was part of something larger. I didn't have to start a pizzeria or anything, but my piece of it could be mine. And it was up to me to maximize it. And that's kind of stayed with me throughout my career. You know, in terms of the influences and thinking back to those days, living outside of Chicago, were there people, your parents, anyone you were able to learn from, watch that really just played a significant role into what you've been able to accomplish? Well, you know, I think one of the people, I mean, obviously, both my parents were very influential, but you know, my dad was uh, an attorney. And so, you know, his career was a very professional career path and was very stable and very straightforward. And, you know, 20, 30 years of getting on the the seven o'clock train and being home at the 530 train. Um, and that's what he wanted out of life. And he had uh, great uh, professional colleagues and reputation. And, you know, we could do a whole show about the transformation of law from when he started his career to what it eventually became. Um, but, you know, my mom was a bigger influence in that she was an entrepreneur, you know, and from the time that I was very young, my mom always had, I mean, we call them a side hustle now. She called them her small businesses, but whether it was, you know, baking cheesecakes and selling them in our neighborhood, um, or she dabbled in the art business for a little while, eventually she started a, a medical supply startup, you know, that sold like paper goods and latex gloves in our neighborhood. And then eventually she became a, a minority, a woman-owned business vendor to Michael Reese HMO Humana in Chicago. And her business actually got substantially larger. Um, that was really impressive to me. And, and, you know, one of the things that you don't see unless you know entrepreneurs is oftentimes we get to know entrepreneurs once they've been successful. So we see this big thing that they've built, but there's not a whole lot of spotlight shined on the startup phase, like when it's really them by hook or by crook. And, you know, I remember my mom going on, on sales calls where she'd be juggling a sample book you know, a box of donuts in high heels, you know, in the middle of the winter in Chicago, trying to make it to a doctor's office to talk about what she wanted to sell. And she was relentlessly enthusiastic about that opportunity. Like her job wasn't necessarily to make the sale. It was to get there and present the best version of herself and her company as many times as she could. And the sales would take care of themselves at that point. And, you know, in every course on, on, you know, entrepreneurialism or starting your own business, I think we always tend to over-index towards the output, like what it looks like when it's done. Very rarely does it look anything other than a sausage factory when you're building it, right? It's messy, it's ugly, it, it takes a lot of work. Uh, you fail as much as you succeed. And actually seeing somebody, you know, who played a pivotal role in my life, my, my own mother, go through that and then eventually get to something that was successful and then see her getting recognized for that success. It was helpful to me to understand these are two different things, like no great business, no great entrepreneur 
just comes out baked as, you know, successful. There's actually a lot of failure and a lot of trial and error that goes into it. And that ability to be resilient and to sort of say, this is part of the process and I'm going to go through it um, was a great learning experience uh, to me early on in my life. Yeah, I'll tell you from interviewing people like yourself, hundreds I will have to say resiliency, the ability to pick yourself off the mat. And it sounds like your mom doing that in the middle of winter in Chicago, you know, lugging around to be able to put that effort and perseverance into something I've found from all of the entrepreneurs and all of the successful business people that I've I've spoken with, probably by far the number one characteristic that made them successful. And it sounds like you learned that at a a pretty young age just by watching what your mom was doing. You do. And and you also like you understand that, you know, there's a lot of things in, in the road to sort of business success that just aren't fair. You know, uh my mom as an entrepreneur, as a female entrepreneur, um, when she was doing this, uh Nobody took her seriously. Like, and I don't mean like in the sense of they would, you know, kind of laugh at her behind her back. They would laugh at her in front of her face and say, I'm not going to go do this. And just that idea of saying, you know what, I'm just looking for that one break. And every conversation I'm getting sharper, I'm getting better. Um, the biggest deal that she ever did that, that sticks in my head um, was when she opened that door and instead of getting greeted by, you know, uh, a man, she was greeted by an African-American woman who was a buyer for a very large hospital. And she said, you know what? I like you. I actually want to give you some business here. And you know what? It's not because we're both women. It's not because we're minorities. It's because you actually are incredibly sharp and you know the value of the opportunity that I'm going to give you. And I just remember that being transformational. But, but my mom had to do a lot that was unfair leading into that. And even today, you know, there are entrepreneurs of all stripes, of all backgrounds across the human spectrum, that it's not just about the strength of their ideas or their business. It's about working through a morass of other things that are obstacles along the way. And that ability to sort of compartmentalize in your head and say, yeah, it might not be fair, but I'm going to still barrel through. Um, That is where success is born. You know, um, there's a million reasons to quit. You know, there's only one magic reason to keep going. And only you know what that is. Because, you know, there are certain points in any business, whether you're Elon Musk or whether you're Richard Stern or whether you're, you're Robert, like where it's just so obvious to everyone around you, why is he doing this? Or why is she doing this? Or why are they doing this? But um, that instinct of an entrepreneur to say, I won't quit um, is where ultimately like transformational success begins. Yeah, I I couldn't agree more just in terms of where that comes from and the ability to be able to get out of bed, to do it again, to go through it, even after the difficult days. And, you know, as you know, being an entrepreneur and and the roller coaster ride of the highs, the lows, even running a business. And, you know, I want to talk about one of, I don't know if it was your first business, which you actually built and sold. And I'm really curious how it started, how you got into it, but um, WOI.com. Tell me a little bit about that. 
Wow, that's a blast from the past. Uh, <laughs> you know, it was it was the very, very early days of internet. It was the very early days of Amazon. And, you know, I saw an opportunity because I loved music and I loved independent artists, people that weren't signed to major record labels, independent record labels, sub pop, the, the Seattle sound. And I saw that there was an opportunity to say, could we build communities for your fans online and help you sell CDs and sell records at that point? It was really before digital music was a thing. Um, and uh, we built up a great business that very inexpensively allowed artists and bands to set up a web page to create e-commerce around merchandise or music that they wanted to sell. And, you know, Fortune Media at the time had uh, a pretty large like web hosting, web community business and said, wow, this is a great piece of color and it's a great addition to it. And, you know, we went from kind of conceiving that company to selling it in about 18 months. It was very, very fast. And, you know, looking back on it now, I didn't know what I didn't know as an entrepreneur. So I was like, wow, 18 months from starting to selling the company, I can't wait to go do it again. And the next one took eight years. <laughs> um, so it, it, you know, it does coming back to our conversation about resilience, a big part of it is luck. Sometimes it's the right time and the right space, the right company, and you're able to kind of lock into that. Um, and sometimes it takes longer, but that, that was a great formative experience for me because, you know, ultimately it did come too quick and too easy. And then many of us who were sort of part of that web 1.0 culture watched, you know, the stock market kind of crash and funding disappear and the dot-com bubble sort of burst. And then you sort of separated the true entrepreneurs from the people who did get lucky because a lot of people went away and a lot of people said, no, now's the time to start again. We're not, we're not giving up on this. And that's really where my career began. Um, and I'm, I'm grateful for it. Tell me about what you did after you had sold the business and, and the second business that took eight years. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, I went and I joined a startup. It wasn't a company that I founded, but I, but I was one of the early employees um, called Ureach Technologies. And, you know, if, if you want to feel old, um, the, the central thesis of Ureach was people have too many phone numbers. You know, people have a fax number and they've got a home phone number and they've got a mobile number. And so we're going to give you one universal telephone number. It's an 800 number that'll ring everywhere. And we'll also let you listen to your emails with text-to-speech and everything. Um, and this seemed so revolutionary at the time. And uh, I joined the company. It was founded by a, a guy named Dave Itner and Krishnamurti Kamampati, who's a mentor of mine, is a great guy, who's been a very successful investor and entrepreneur since then. And it was very clear that the direct-to-consumer offering wasn't going to set the world on fire. But it turned out that, you know, this company had recruited incredible talent and it recruited incredible talent out of Bell Labs, which for those mm -hmm. who are listening that don't know, Bell Labs was Google in those days. That was where the smartest engineers in the world went. And so everything in the infrastructure of that company was built for carrier scale. It wasn't built for consumer scale. And so we pivoted the company into a B2B business. And we started working with telephone carriers, CLEX, wireless carriers, landline carriers, to replace uh, voice messaging platforms and enhance services just at the dawn of IP telephony, as they were switching from you know, big class five infrastructure 
to IP-based um, telephone systems. Uh, and it turned out to be a great business, but it wasn't the business that we intended to start. It, it really came down to a moment of pivoting and recognizing that there was a bigger opportunity um, and marshalling the business in that direction. But, but the real lesson of that company for me was, at the end of the day, in technology companies, yes, there are a few that it's all about the patent portfolio, but by and large, for everyone else, it's all about the people. And if you bring the right people together and the right level of talent, you build the right culture, um, whether your first idea succeeds or your third idea succeeds, you will succeed. If you bring people that, that aren't motivated, aren't committed, don't have the right level of talent, well, that's your company. That, that's what it is. Um, and so it was a powerful lesson for me early on that having engineers who were, you know, in and of themselves, tremendous creators and tremendous inventors, what was a hidden strength that, you know, time and again, I would see in my career, the companies that I worked for, the companies that I started exploiting, you know, getting really tremendous, tremendous value and tremendous commercial traction from the ingenuity of the people on the ground who knew our product best. It sounds like you had, you know, this opportunity to work for some of these companies and your own that you started and one of the early employees at the recent company you're talking about. And it's interesting because then you went on and you went to some of the larger players and worked at some of these people will know the names, obviously Amazon. It was earlier on, but uh, PlayStation. What was the difference? What was that like going from maybe where you were one of the first people in the business or you started the company to then going and working in an organization that had thousands of people. Yeah. Yeah. So I would say I had an early midlife crisis, my late twenties, early thirties. I had started a couple of companies and I had, I had done well. Most of those companies, while they were good businesses, they were not focused on problems that I was personally passionate about. Right. Almost by accident, I had started moving down a path of working in big telecom, working in B2B enterprise software, uh, did well, you know, and was doing well, but I wasn't personally passionate about any of that, right? And, you know, I sort of had that, that Jerry Maguire moment where I was like, gosh, how much time do I have left? And do I want to be doing things that I genuinely care about? Or is this all just you know, kind of making money and, and whatnot. And I will tell you that, uh, well, money is always part of it. For the entrepreneurs that I admire most, I know it's much more personal for them. And to devote yourself to building a company and building a, a large company that other people admire, it really does come down to your personal passion, like something that you want to commit your life to. And I was pretty sure I didn't want that. And the thing that I love, kind of coming back to what we were talking about before, was media. I always felt like media was something that as a consumer, I was personally passionate about. And it just so happened that this was about the same time that the digital transformation of television, of film, of music was really starting to kick into high gear. And I had an opportunity to join Amazon and to be part of launching and conceiving Amazon Studios, the original content arm of the company. And 
in many ways, even though I was working for a very large company, and even then Amazon was large, much larger now, it was a startup inside that company. And the way that we were treated was almost as though Amazon was a VC investing in us as we went forward. And so it felt very similar. It just, if, if, I, could, if I could say this, it, it, the only thing that was missing was the regular fundraising because there was one person that was writing the check, but it felt very entrepreneurial in that way. And so that was a, a great experience for me. And similarly, but at a different scale, PlayStation was like that inside of Sony Corporation. Obviously, PlayStation had been, you know, much bigger, you know, even than Amazon Studios was at that point. But there was Sony Corporation, which was a large, very venerable, uh, conservative company based out of Tokyo. And then there was the PlayStation Group, you know, that was a bunch of California tech entrepreneurs. And they invited me to come in there and help them build their business and work on media products there. And that was another great experience. But again, it still felt very, very entrepreneurial. And then I came back to Amazon and went to Audible. But Audible is a wholly owned subsidiary of Amazon. It is an Amazon corporate. And it, and it had a founder, you know, Don Katz, who's an incredible entrepreneur, who I learned so much from. But it never felt like a big company. It, it still felt like an insurgent, scrappy startup. And I think it, it still does to this day. Um, so, so while I have worked some of these bigger corporations and I've been exposed to them, it's always been building something new or disruptive or entrepreneurial inside of them that's been my focus. I think I would probably be a disaster um, at leading the, the larger corporate culture of some of these monolithic titans, but to come inside of them and to work with them to do something new and something innovative, that's been a great gift. Yeah, you know, just thinking and hearing you learning more about your story it really is interesting as you said going back to the fact you love media and then really going to some of these places and i think amazon studios and at the time when you did this and when you were going through this so much was changing in the world of entertainment where who would have thought especially back then, especially from like you talked about, we got when we were kids, it was three networks and you go to the movies. And is it incredible to you? And were you able to visualize this when you first were at Amazon Studios and really see everything that has taken place and changed just let's say in the last 10 years? It's pretty incredible. Were you able to envision that when you first started at Amazon Studios? I'd like to say yes, but the answer is no. I think to be perfectly frank, like I couldn't get a job at any major traditional studio in Hollywood as somebody who had a tech background or product background um, coming out of enterprise software, right? And so inherently you have to say, who else is taking a risk right now, right? Who is the status quo not serving that's willing to take a chance on you and your ideas as you come through? And I point to Amazon. I mean, literally, it, it, I kid you not, Robert, everybody in Hollywood laughed at Amazon when the, when the unceremonious announcement came that they're getting into the film and television business. We were booksellers from Seattle. And by the way, we didn't have an LA office. We had a Seattle office. 
And we would say things like, we are going to transform cinema. We are going to create an open door to Hollywood. But Hollywood's door was closed to us, right? And so going there, I think that I was really excited more than anything else that there were a group of people that said, hey, the status quo isn't working for us. We're going to create a new status quo. Would you like to be part of that? Because the status quo wasn't working for me either. Like I wasn't going to end up getting a job working at a major studio to get started. And what also ended up happening in that environment when you're disrupting, when you're creating something new is there is no status quo to start with. So it's not like people say, well, I expect that we're going to do things this way or that way. People are very open to saying, pragmatically, how should we do it? And there's a lot of orthodoxy that just gets revisited out of saying, well, none of us really know. So we're going we're gonna to use data and we're going to use high judgment and we're going to come up with what works for us. So it was a really exciting time. And, it, and some of the things that we worked on at studios didn't have the impact that we would like. Like, I think a big part of what we were exploring early on was how do we crowdsource ideas for film and television? How do we let Amazon customers vote and participate and help us select what we're working on? And then some of the things worked really well. Like we started working with creators and creating a model whereby they could have a lot of freedom and within certain constraints of what what we were trying to put together and what we were trying to build. And I just marvel at the team. They've taken it so much further than even what happened during, during my tenure there. And I think to quote an Amazonian philosophy, it's still day one. They're still inventing the future of it. But I, I don't think that anybody had any idea at that particular time that really all of Hollywood was going to transform. And, you know, we'd be sitting here in 2023 and the biggest media companies in the world would be Apple, Amazon, Google, Disney, I think people could have guessed, but how Disney became that company, I don't think anyone would have guessed. Uh, probably not even Bob Iger back in yeah. you know, 2014, 2015, but it's been a lot of fun. And I, I think as an entrepreneur, it started with this idea of take a chance, go spend some time with the people that the status quo isn't serving as your way to create a front door for yourself. Yeah, it's really mind boggling. And and as you said that with people laughing, it was true. And just coming from an entertainment background, myself in my career and thinking about it, I didn't know anything, of course. And I'm thinking the same thing. Amazon, what's Amazon doing? You know, like even some of the things, Netflix or whatever it may have been, like this is it. And it's so incredible just how quickly things changed and how things were reversed and flipped. And still to this day, especially while I was at Creative Artists Agency and seeing it firsthand, because that was about five years ago or so. And, and that's when things were really turning and changing and streaming. And, and I want to jump ahead to where you are today. And it's a company I've followed, I've known has changed a lot. You've been a big part of that. It's incredible. The story is for our listeners. It's called Tune In, and I'm sure a lot of them know it. I want to know, how did that opportunity come up? And I believe you joined during or right maybe in the middle of the pandemic as well. Yeah, yeah. I think the 
and you can only see these things in hindsight, but but the threat of my career has really been reinventing these media categories with technology and then operating very scaled businesses that are the result of that reinvention or disruption, depending on on how you look at it. And so Amazon Studios was part of that with film and television. PlayStation was about that in gaming and media. And even Audible was was about that in the publishing and the book space. Again, when when I think Don started that company, people thought of audiobooks as what you listen to on long road trips with your parents. Now I think audio is a prescient, vibrant part of our lives, our daily lives. I mean, I, I, I don't know somebody who doesn't either have an audiobook or a podcast queued up um, when they've got a free private moment. And Don saw that vision, and we worked together to make that vision a reality. The same opportunity came up with TuneIn. I mean, TuneIn is the largest platform in the world for live audio. And I think that, you know, radio as a media category is something that hasn't transformed the way film, television, even print has. It's sort of stuck to a certain extent in its analog form. And part of that is because of the geographic diversity of radio. Part of it's about the hyper-fragmentation of who creates and who owns radio stations around the world. And so at TuneIn, we saw an opportunity to build a global digital platform that could bring all the world's radio together. And in doing that, make radio function as a digital product, not as an analog product. And in that sense, just like a lot of other media categories, it becomes different. You know, radio today is a one-way medium. People broadcast out. They don't necessarily know who's listening. If they do, it's through proxy measurements and whatnot. Digital radio is two-way. We know who's listening. We know who's transmitting. And we can create a virtuous cycle of improvement and service between those, those folks. Radio today is landlocked. If you're in Chicago, you can hear Chicago radio stations. On TuneIn, you can hear radio stations in Vienna or in New Zealand or in San Francisco. And so there's a lot of things that just change because of digital. But but just like film and television and print journalism, fundamentally, like what is radio doesn't change. The medium, the art of it doesn't change. But everything around it, from the business model to the data to the opportunities for better customer experiences, more efficient distribution, all of that sort of transforms. And I think what what stood with me about my first kind of tour at Amazon, and this might be apocryphal, but I'm going to credit it to Jeff Bezos, even though I didn't hear him say this, was this statement that people don't change their habits for as good or slightly better. They change their habits for significantly better, right? And so if you ask yourself, why did people stop going to Blockbuster Video and start watching movies on Netflix, it wasn't simply this neat thing that movies were on my TV. It was that going to the local mall, picking up a movie, remembering to return it on time, rewinding it, that was so much harder than just turning on the app and watching, right? And people were willing to change their habits for a lot better. All of a sudden, going from paying 2 or $3 for a rental to like 10 bucks for as much as you wanted much better, like not incrementally better, like transformatively better. And this crossover into digital gives us opportunities to serve customers and listeners in the case of TuneIn in ways that aren't incrementally better, but that are transformatively better. Like in our case, going from listening to like 30 radio stations in your local market to 100,000 radio stations around the world, it's not a small change, it's a massive change, right? And so that's what I look for in this transformation, like 
how do we make big, you know, exponential leaps forward in terms of how we can create value and how we can serve ultimately our consumers with technology while still preserving what they love about the medium? Like fundamentally in that example of Blockbuster to Netflix, what is a two-hour movie didn't change? Like, you're in fact watching a lot of the same movies that existed when Blockbuster was here versus Netflix now, but everything around it transformed and made that experience better for a customer. And I think that's that's a similar opportunity that we have with TuneIn today. Yeah. When you look at TuneIn and coming on board during that time, was that difficult? Was that hard for you as CEO jumping into the mix when we were basically, I think, shut down, so to speak, and people not in an office? And I know it's audio, but you're, it's, it's a business. Yeah, I think, well, I'll answer it in two ways. On a human level, it was terrifying, right? Because if you think about it, forget about my career or paying my bills or anything like that. There was this pandemic that nobody really knew what it was or where it was going to go. And I joined the company in 2020 after everybody had been sent home and had been kind of living in their apartments, their homes, not talking with each other. And I, as a leader, couldn't say I knew when we would come out of this. I mean, I did have faith that we would, but we didn't have vaccines at that point. Like, we didn't know even what the virus was completely. We just knew that this this black swan event of shutting down the whole country had kind of happened. So I had a lot of those fears, right? And rightly or wrongly, not an elected official, don't work for the government, but people look to you and say, reassure me, you're the yeah. CEO of this company. Tell me it's going to be all, all right. And I didn't know. I didn't know what was going to happen there. As a business, though, and I think this was something that was surprising, but also in retrospect, made a lot of sense was audio just exploded. The power of hearing other human voices staying connected to, to news, to current events, it went through a renaissance during that period of time. And you saw companies like Clubhouse emerge. We were talking about Meta and their live audio efforts because you had nothing but time. And truthfully, today, even then, the number one reason why people listen to our platform, besides the fact that there's a lot of content and it's new every day, is for companionship. You know, they're hearing other people talking about the world. And that has a very deep human value that especially during that pandemic, whether it's on their smart speaker, or whether it's on their phone, hearing human voices, putting context into the world around us, while we were doing other things like making banana bread with our kids or <laughs> trying to stay on Zoom calls was was a really good thing. And so that dichotomy of, I don't know if we're going to come out of this or how we're going to come out of it. But in this moment, our business is, is sort of thriving. How can we how can we lean into that was sort of what I walked into. And it was, it was scary, but exciting. I mean, I, I think, coming back to even an earlier point in our discussion, these moments where the status quo is going to be massively disrupted, and you need to decide which side of that equation you're on. Like, are you going to preserve the status quo because it serves you? Or are you going to jump in and be part of that disruption? I had the opportunity to be part of that disruption here. And I think it's been it's been good. Like we've been off to a very good start as a company. But I think every entrepreneur needs to make that decision. Are you the incumbent who's trying to preserve order? Or are you the insurgent trying to go ahead and disrupt the current order? 
And there's pros and cons of being on either side of that equation. It's not a value judgment. I just think as my career has gone, I've gotten a lot more attuned to when those moments are happening and which side I'm on. Um, and yeah. it's usually the insurgent side. Yeah, it totally seems like that, especially from the places you were, the places you can't come from and being there almost at the earliest moments, too early. And so, you know, you're, you're way ahead of your time in, in, in a lot of things, like going back to WOI.com, when you think about it, really, that turns into Spotify or, you know, whatever it may have been. But my question for you in terms of tune in and the opportunity there, what do you see now? Like if you were looking back in, in like what you saw at Amazon Studios and what you believe, what do you see now at TuneIn into the future and where the platform's going in the business? And, and what is that major opportunity to scale? Yeah, I think you bring up a really great point, which is the one thing that's that's not under anyone's control, which is timing, right? And we can make guesses, but a big reason why Netflix emerged at the moment that it did and Spotify emerged at the moment that it did was it was the moment that consumers were open to those value propositions and the ecosystem of technology and data connectivity that needed to fuel their growth was actually mature enough and in place. If we take digital music, for instance, first iteration was what I was doing, like selling CDs and shipping them, right? Then there was Napster for file sharing. Then there was Steve Jobs and 99 cent signals with Apple. Then streaming came, right? So there were several iterations that weren't quite right before you got to the moment. And even Daniel Eck and Spotify, I think would say to you, their first pitch decks were all about web-based uh, music discovery. Nobody was gonna do this on a phone. How could you possibly do that on a phone? Now I would say it's totally flipped. Like, not only are you not doing it you know, on the web, you may not even be doing it on a mobile phone anymore. Maybe it's a smart speaker, maybe it's a connected vehicle. Um, and so timing and sort of what's happening in sort of an enablement sense of what you're trying to accomplish matters. And so as it relates to TuneIn, I mean, TuneIn's been around for a while. And I think this vision of bringing radio into a digital world has been something that the company has believed in, but it's only post pandemic that we live in a world where smart speaker adoption and connected devices have become the dominant way that people consume audio. It's only sort of post pandemic that we're seeing disruption in automotive where electric vehicles that have basically four or 5G connectivity and Android tablets for entertainment systems have replaced AM FM radios. And so a lot of the growth in our business is not just in having the content, which we've had for a while, but it's having a platform that can connect all of these different devices that allow customers to listen any way they want. And if we go back into the history of radio and say, what made radio a dominant form of media in the 20th century? Well, it was ubiquity. You could listen to radio anywhere. You'd listen to it in your pocket, on your Walkman, on your transistor radio. You had a radio in your kitchen. You had a talk radio next to your bed. You had a radio in your car. As an industry, those points of access to the content have gradually disappeared. Most, most people for AM, FM, terrestrial broadcast, they only have that in their car, maybe, right? But I think that what TuneIn is doing 
is recreating the ubiquity in a digital sense for this category. So you can listen on any smart speaker. You can listen on any connected vehicle. You can listen on our app. You can listen on the web. We have over 200 different devices that we're serving radio content to today. And that number is growing. It's proliferating very fast. And it's showing up in places. And this is the amazing thing about technology and and digital technology and IP distribution. It's showing up in places that we probably couldn't have expected. Like Greg Norman has a a golf cart company that has TuneIn built into it. So while you're golfing, you can listen to, to radio. If you go to Lifetime Fitness and fire up an exercise bike, you're going to find TuneIn Radio there. If you buy a new Tesla, you're going to find TuneIn there. I don't know whether we would have imagined that it would have been as ubiquitous as it was when the company was was originally founded. But certainly over the last three years, Simon CEO, we have great conviction about the power that creating ubiquity for radio has and what it will do for our content creators and our partners. And the future is bright. We're excited about it. Yeah, it's incredible what you have been able to achieve in the three years. And, and you know, as you, you talked about it, it's interesting. I, you said it before, and I, I, never, I never thought about this, which was pretty incredible, is that people needed to hear those voices during the pandemic when they were stuck inside, like you said, baking banana bread with their kids or wanting to listen to other voices. And the one thing that audio, which I love, always brought about was the empathy. It's it's empathetic when you can hear those conversations. And it's really funny because I remember thinking early on in in during the pandemic, oh, this is this is going to be terrible for podcasting. This is going to be terrible for radio. No one's commuting anymore. No one's when are they going to listen? And and just the opposite happened. And for you and for for tune in coming out of the pandemic now and into this world where do you see tune in headed and the industry itself moving so i i think that some of the habits of the pandemic um have persisted so smart speaker listening for instance which grew tremendously while people were at home it's now habit like people understand, oh, I can listen to podcasts and music and other things while I'm at home. And those devices, especially in the last few years, have reached a level of ubiquity and market saturation that they're commonplace, which wasn't necessarily true three to five years ago, but it's definitely helped. And I think as a result, you know, for our business, we continue to see a shift from terrestrial listening, which by the way, there's still a lot of radio that's listened to via AM, FM receivers or via DAB in Europe, we continue to see that shifting over to digital. And as it does, and this is a truism about all digital transformation, it tends to concentrate on a handful of platforms, right? When you start to sort of look at what's happened with film, what's happened to television, we've gone from an environment in analog television where there were network groups and stations and affiliate models which crisscrossed the entire world to concentration in digital of viewership and or and or listening where there's one, two, three, four, five, and that's it. And that's the power of digital. Just like it's happened in e-commerce, just like it's happened in transportation and logistics, that is what, what tends to happen. And so, you know, as a company, we're investing to be that platform. And one of those platforms 
that for the radio industry allows them to really concentrate listening and aggregate. And I think that it comes at a very interesting time for our content creation partners and broadcasters, because as I said before, you know, what makes great radio today actually made great radio five years ago, 10 years ago. Some people would argue Howard Stern, for instance, is better than he was 10 years ago today, but everything else around it changes, right? And so for us, I think it's a question of, as a broadcaster, somebody who makes great radio, you also need to be a tremendous technologist and a media strategist and a product manager, or can you partner with a platform like TuneIn and say, I make content, you guys help me with distribution, with monetization, and that's a partnership. And that's something that I think over the last five years or so, many broadcasters struggled with. A lot of broadcasters said, I guess I've got to have an app and I guess I have to have a website. And I guess I have to connect to all these different devices where people might want to listen. And now I think they're starting to say, wait a minute, I think I want to work with TuneIn. I think I want to work with TuneIn to get on these devices, to be in their app. And I can focus on creating content. I can focus on my local sales teams and focus on the things that are really what I'm great at as a company. And this model isn't, isn't unique to what we're doing with radio. Very similar model with a company like Shopify, right? Where you know, you've got a, thousands and thousands of small retailers who could go and build their own websites and stores. But why would you want to? Like, why don't you just focus on what you're good at, which is curating a great shopping experience. Yeah. Figuring out how to take credit cards and getting your own website stood up and everything else. Like, that stuff works better at scale. And I think... In many ways, the future of our business is taking the distribution, the monetization side of broadcasting and bringing real scale to it and offering real value to our broadcast partners as a value exchange for the tremendous content that they create. And I, I think that future for us is bright. If for nothing else, then we're really at the very early days, even though a lot has happened. Still, you're talking about 15 to 20% of listening for radios and digital now. 80% is still in that terrestrial world. And so we're just in the very early innings of this transformation. And I think it's really on us as a company to tune in to lead with vision, to be a great partner, to focus on meaningful value with our content creation partners. But, but our mission as a company is to help reinvent radio for a digital world. And I, I think we're off to a good start. Yeah, well, I, I'll definitely say from someone who... I mean, it's a, a huge fan of radio in audio in terms of business-wise and hosting a podcast. From what I've seen, tune in and the growth and knowing it for a long time over the past few years that you've been there, I got to say that you've done an incredible job. And, and in terms of where you are today as a business, as opposed to maybe years back, and I know a lot of that has to do with you, your leadership, your team, timing, as we talked about. And I, I want to leave you. By, by, by the way, Robert, I, I would, I would create just one, one thing there. It, it's all the team. Like as much as I would like to talk about my leadership, maybe the only thing that, that I've contributed to that is creating an environment where these people could all coexist with each other. But coming back to even my most formative, like early experiences in my career, it's all about the team and it's all about their passion for this. That's the only IP that the company really has. And so they get all the credit for, for what's going on. 
if anything, I just get the blame for the mistakes we've made. And we have made mistakes along the way. And those those sort of rest with me. But they definitely get the credit for, for what we've done and, and where we are. And they're the architects of the future of the company as well. Um, yeah. They're the reason why we're propelling forward. Well, it seems like you're the perfect guy who's been able to facilitate that environment just from everything that you've learned and gone through and from some of the past experiences you've had. Uh, you know, it struck me where you said that you wouldn't have been able to get a job at a big studio, movie studio. But since you knew that tech side and you were able to go to Amazon Studios, which became this incredible thing. And I want to leave our listeners and viewers in terms of a piece of advice from you, from talking to you and understanding your history, your resume, it really seems like you were not the Forrest Gump, but at, at every moment. You just call me Forrest Gump. I know, I know that's like, that's a terrible, that's, I didn't mean to say. I'm leaving this podcast right Tom now. Tom Hanks. It's yeah, Tom well, Hanks. Tom, uh, he's, he's, and you have yeah. Tom Hanks on your, on uh, tune in, but not, not Forrest Gump, but more of the, the Forrest Gump character always seemed to be at key pivotal places and times and moments. And I look at your career and going back, like I said, initially with audio and WOI.com and TV and entertainment and Amazon studios. And, and now really, even though it's the oldest radio tune in, it always seems to me you're ahead of the game or you were, you had a vision, you saw things if you were a young entrepreneur today and you were going out and you were looking for where the future is going and, and where might be a good place to be part of that you have a passion for, like you said, what advice or, or what would you tell someone is where that might happen? I, th I mean, I think it would really be two things. I mean, one is start being really observant about status quo versus disruption. And what I mean by that, and I'll give you like a, a really contemporary example. You're graduating or you're soon going to be graduating from college and you want to work in marketing. And you've sent out 20 resumes to the marketing departments of your favorite consumer products companies and nobody is calling you back, right? What that should be telling you is the status quo is not serving you right? You, you're going to have to fight tooth and nail to somehow get them to, to pay attention to you. On the other hand, we have the birth of chat GPT and AI, right? And I would say, why not be the disruptor? Why not go take an online course? Like if you're still in school, like find an opportunity to learn this and say, I'm not the marketer, guys. That's status quo. I'm the chat GPT program. That's what I do. And you know what's going to happen is, one, you're going to stand out, right? Because even if the whole team is saying, we're not sure about where AI is going, they're always going to need one. And you know what? There's not many of them that can step up, right? So that moment of saying, like, wow, there's something disruptive that's going to happen here. When I was younger and I was starting out my career, I mean, this is going to sound laughable, but it was, who knows HTML and JavaScript, Oops. right? Yeah. And, you know, as much as it seems, and this is coming back to our earlier conversation, like, oh my God, tech companies and the web, and it's so complicated now. Back then, it was people who taught themselves HTML and JavaScript, cold fusion. And if you could code 
And there weren't, there weren't like university programs teaching you how to build websites at that point. Uh Had a crazy mix of like self-taught engineering types, designers who came from the graphic design world, building these websites. And it was, it was sausage making in the early days and it normalized out and professionalized since then. But in that moment, it's directly analogous in my mind to learning about chat GPT and AI technologies today. And then the second thing, when you find that, that place where you can join an insurgency or you can join the disruption, be prepared to work relentlessly hard. And what I would say is, is that you can talk to any entrepreneur that you want. I don't know very many entrepreneurs that have good work-life balance. And I'm not talking about people that don't eat well or don't exercise. I'm saying that usually the person who's at the center of one of these companies that we admire, the person that starts this company, literally can't sleep because they can't stop thinking about it, right? And I have a friend and is in a very different field, but it's applicable. He's a relatively successful screenwriter. And he gets asked all the time, how do I become a screenwriter? How do I do this? He said, you want to become a successful writer? You've got to want to do this so badly that you're willing to not be a good friend. You're willing to not go to the party. You're willing to not eat well, sleep well, because this is solely consuming for you. And yes, when you're successful, things will balance out. You'll take a vacation and things will go, or maybe not. Maybe you'll be like Elon Musk and you'll sleep in your own factories because you just are that committed to the mission that you're on. But I think it's, it is very, very hard to find that success story with an entrepreneur at the center of it who said, I only worked 40 hours a week and I managed to go ahead and have a great social life and I great relationships with my family and everything. It really does have to be, I'm going to focus on this. And I, I thought Jeff Bezos had a great attitude towards it. He said, you know, I have work-life balance, but it's over a larger time horizon than people would consider reasonable. Like, I will go into something very deep for five years and then come out of it and then go do something else. And over a long enough time horizon, I'll achieve balance. But it's not about in every seven-day week saying, okay, enough of this, enough of this, enough of this. And I just think that it drives young entrepreneurs, people who are coming out of school crazy because they're being told, find your bliss, have good balance, and oh, by the way, achieve something groundbreaking. And it's really, really hard to do that last thing if you're also doing the other, the other two things as well. I couldn't agree with you more. It really is the truth. Whenever I hear about side hustle or this or and knowing and just thinking of my, my own story, that's the story I know from having to miss out on certain things when I was 25, because on the weekends, I'm sitting in the office and it's this thing I'm going to make successful no matter what. And you see all these incredibly successful entrepreneurs. It really is true. And I love how you put it in terms of, or how Bezos put it in terms of over the long horizon or or period, there will be balance. And you see it now with him. (laughs) But the great thing is, is that it's such a great point to be taken. And I also love the fact just talking about how you have to do something a little bit differently, because it reminded me of myself when I wanted to get in sports, I'd do anything to get in sports. And the, the only way I was able to get in was what no one else wanted to do, which at the time was doing these sports hospitality packages. You know, everyone wanted to 
sell spot. And that was my only in. And the advice you've given just for any entrepreneur coming out and starting, and especially looking at chat GPT, exactly what I would do. And and I just, I want to thank you because I, I learned so much today and and I can see why you've been extremely successful. I apologize on the Forrest Gump comment, but you definitely, <laughs> you definitely have been in a lot of places at the start of a lot of things and, uh, and doing some incredible things. And, and I really think with TuneIn and where you are today that uh, you guys are, I know it's been around, but taking off and going, going to a lot of uh, places where this thing is really, really going to scale. It's exciting time for us right now. Thank you so much for having me, Robert. I appreciate it. You got it. Thanks, Rich. And that's our episode. If you like what you heard, please subscribe to How Success Happens wherever you get your podcasts. We come out with a new episode every Wednesday morning, and you don't want to miss it. And if you like to share, please feel free to pass along the show to an entrepreneur friend who could use a boost, and I could always use the subscribers. And do you have ideas for guests? I always love to hear about great entrepreneurs. If you know anyone, shoot me an email at hsh at entrepreneur.com or on Twitter at Robert Tuckman, that's R-O-B-E-R-T, T-U-C-H-M-A-N, or even send me a message on LinkedIn. How Success Happens is a production of Entrepreneur Media. Be sure to visit entrepreneur.com for insight on building your business, or even better yet, subscribe to our magazine. No joke, I found my first job after reading about a company in Entrepreneur Magazine back in the 1990s. It's always been my absolute favorite magazine for entrepreneurs. Thanks for listening and spending some time with me today. Until next time, my name is Robert Tuckman, just a fellow entrepreneur and your host. See you soon.